Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hi, Ashley. Hello, Candy. Happy Spooktober. Ah, <laughs> yes. Happy Spooktober. <laughs> well, you know that I, I think we both love this theme. Mm-hmm. And I think we're also both going to love this episode. In fact, I'm sure we are because... We love every episode. What are you talking about? Well, that's about? true. But this one, I think, is intriguing in a different way. Ooh. Yeah. In honor of a new season, I'm bringing back something that I'm sure you've missed, Ashley. What? We're going to start with a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. You, you're just feeling... You're feeling the teacher vibe you have to bring it back <laughs> but heads up this is a quiz i could not pass myself if oh, had i oh, not okay. done the research so okay. no worries if you struggle you're, a little bit with some <laughs> of the questions you're setting me up for doom and failure okay. that's okay right. I, I will fail for entertainment purposes only <laughs> okay so what is the oldest surviving book on forensic medicine um, hint it was in the book you read. I know. That you shared with me. <laughs> I know. It's, oh, golly, but I read it a long time ago. I know. And I it's, would never remember um, it either. Um, um, is it something Chinese? Y- yes. I yes. don't remember the title. Well, no, but do you do you remember anything about it? That it's the oldest surviving book on yep. <laughs> forensic medicine? Yes. Well, I'm, yes. It came up in the book that we both read. We're going to talk about yes. what that title is in just a second. But when I came across that, I was fascinated. Did you find the book? Well, I didn't find the book, but I saw it on Amazon. Ooh. And it's also reviewed on Goodreads by about five people because not a lot of people <laughs> have read it. In this book. <laughs> but they refer to it. I'm, I don't know if there's an actual real title because mm-hmm. it is so old, but mm-hmm. they, they call it The Washing Away of Wrongs, Forensic Medicine in 13th Century China. Yes. And according to the Amazon description, it says, quote, printed in 1247, it is the oldest extant book on forensic medicine in the world, written as a guide for magistrates in conducting inquests. The book is a major source of early Chinese knowledge of pathology and morbid anatomy. That's very interesting. I 1247. So whoever is publishing that, that's clearly past the copyright. <laughs> that's, that's where my head is. Well, I also looked it up on Goodreads because Uh I thought, well, how do they describe it? Right. This is what they say. Collected cases of injustice rectified or the washing away of wrong. So mm-hmm. they, that was the other title, Collected Cases of Injustice Rectified. They say it is a Chinese book written by Song Qi in 1247 during the Song Dynasty as a handbook for coroners. The author combined many historical cases of forensic science with his own experiences and wrote the book with an eye to avoiding injustice. Can you, th- can you imagine that? He's saying in, what'd you say, 1247? He's basically it on historical. So in 1247, he's calling it his, his something previous. That is so fascinating it, to me. It absolutely blows me away. Yes. Okay. Here's a second question, which I think is challenging because I tried to do this myself. So it's a long form answer. <laughs> it's not a multiple choice. <laughs> there you go. Yes. In your own words. Oh no. In your own words. How would you define forensic anthropology? Mm. Forensic anthropology, in my own words, it would be the study of bones and the body and the method of death. Hey, that's pretty good. Hi. Yeah. According to the source I looked up, it said it is a special subfield of physical anthropology, which is the study of human remains, that involves applying skeletal analysis and techniques in archaeology to solving criminal cases. Ah, I left out the solving, but I got I got some you, of that. You did. I got a seventy five percent. 
Okay. So you may remember this from the book. Mm -hmm. What are a few things that forensic anthropologists can help determine through their scientific methods? Right. Uh, They can help determine the time since death. Yes. They can help determine the manner of death. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can. Mm, How many are there? There are many, but many. there are the big four. You've mentioned one of the big oh, four that they kept what, talking about in the book. If they were male or female? Yep. And their ethnicity? Is that correct? Yes, their ancestry. Ancestry. Okay. So it can be time since death, sometimes manner of death, their, uh, the age and their age. Yes. You did really well. The only thing that you left off was height. Their estimated height. And they can sometimes get that just from a femur bone. Yes. That's very good. Okay. Can you name, this is the last question. Okay. Can you name a fictional TV character who was a forensic anthropologist? Any fictional? Mm, The only one I can think of, I think, was just a medical examiner, and that was Quincy M.E. Mm. Okay. What's the answer? Well, this is a series that I think you may be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Bones, do you know? Do oh, you I know? do. My mom has seen that show. I have not seen it, but oh, I have heard about it. I was it. thinking you had. Mm-mm. Okay. Nope. All right. Well, then. I missed that one. Well, and well, you should if you've never seen the show. For some <laughs> reason, I had it in my head that you <laughs> were familiar okay. with it. But Dr. Temperance Brennan mm-hmm. is a fictional character played by Emily. How do you say? Duchanel, maybe? Like her sister's. Okay. Zoe. Zoe or Zoe. Zoe, yeah. Well, she plays that character in the Fox television series Bones, or she did. I believe it might be off the air now. But I think it is. She was an anthropologist, forensic anthropologist, and a kinesiologist. What's so that? She, well, she studied apparently muscles, like the human anatomy in the body oh. and how things work together, the movement of the body, all those things. And she was in that fictional show supposed to be the leading authority in the field of forensic anthropology. Mm. I thought it was interesting that she was actually loosely based on the author Kathy Reichs, who writes all of those crime novels, and Temperance Brennan is the lead character, this heroine in a lot of the novels written by that author. Oh. And this is kind of a famous example for, for our listeners. I thought some of them might be able to relate to this example of a forensic anthropologist that's kind of out there in the what a popular cool name culture. Too. Temperance. Yeah. Well, For anybody who's kind of paying attention, you probably saw a theme there. For our October theme of Spooktober, today's episode is going to dig into this idea of forensic anthropology by by specifically focusing in on one of the most famous forensic anthropologist who is still alive today and in fact it was him, his birthday yesterday yes happy belated birthday to it'll Dr. be very belated Bill bass <laughs> yeah by the time this comes yes. up it will be very belated but he is the founder of the body farm <laughs> we are going to be digging into digging in you I said it, it again. again i'm taking a drink of my tea <laughs> we're going to be getting into dr bill bass's whole history and how he came to found the body farm and all of the interesting things that have come from that science that he has helped to develop. the Kentucky connection. Absolutely. There is Mm -hmm. a Kentucky connection. So just to give some context, this came about because Ashley was reading a book. That's right. Which was again, given to me by my mom. Thanks, mom. Rebecca, who has given us so many amazing books this season. Great books. Or last season and this season. And you just found it really interesting. I did. I really, really did. I thought it was, it it grossed me out a little bit in some places. I had to put it down because, you know, I I have kind of a queasy stomach on some of those, but I just thought it was absolutely fascinating and what you could learn mm-hmm. from the bodies at, yes. at the body farm. Yes. Well, Ashley recommended the book to me and she passed it along and I absolutely found it fascinating, but also strangely humorous, even yeah. in the midst of mm-hmm. talking about such serious topics mm-hmm. and, you know, it got into science, it got into things that were a little gruesome, mm-hmm. but it was so engagingly written. So we're pulling heavily from this book right off the top of the the bat here we want to acknowledge death's acres inside the legendary forensic lab the body farm where the dead do tell tales it was written co-written by dr bill bass himself with the help of john jefferson who is a writer Mm -hmm. so the two of them wrote this together and just did a i think a fascinating job and it's the first of many right well they ended up collaborating later on a series of fictional stories we're going to get into that. Okay. Yes. Okay. But this is obviously nonfiction. Okay. Yes. It came out in 2003. Now, one of the reasons why I did find it so fascinating was I had a little bit of background. 
a long, long time ago, I had read Patricia Cornwell's book by the name ah, The Body Farm. The one they talk about in the book. Yeah, it came out in 1999. So I'm going to guess that I read that back pro- then, probably around that time. Mm-hmm. It featured her lead heroine, Dr. K. Scarpetta. And so I remember reading that book, finding the concept fascinating. Mm-hmm. I've heard of The Body Farm research facility a few times mm-hmm. over the years, mm-hmm. but did not know a lot about it. So this book really gave me such insight. Yes, such insights, such incredibly deep information about it. All right. So are we ready to to go ahead and start? To dig in. To dig in. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, here's how it all began. This is the quote that I think Ashley was thinking of from the book. My forensic career began as a result of an early morning traffic accident outside Frankfort, Kentucky in the winter of 1954. <sighs> yeah. 1954. Long time ago. Yeah. So what had happened was two trucks had collided on a two-lane highway and a fire had started, leaving three burned bodies. They were able to confirm the identity of the drivers, but they didn't know who that third person was, the Mm -hmm. passenger. At that time, Dr. Bill, well, he He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a doctor then. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, let me just go ahead and right off the top here, I want to give full respect to this man. He is so renowned, Mm -hmm. so celebrated, has so many accomplishments behind him. So, I don't want to take anything away from him. He is Dr. Bill Bass. Right. But for the sake of storytelling, it's just going to be a lot friendlier if we call him Bill. Okay. So, no disrespect intended. I'm just going to call him Bill. That sounds fine. Okay. All right. So Bill Bass was pursuing a master's degree in counseling at UK, and he was taking an anthropology course just for fun. So when his professor, Dr. Snow, invited Bill to accompany him to help with the case, Bill went, and it gave him a firsthand look at how Dr. Snow was able to help identify this third person as a woman based on her bones, and then also saw how Dr. Snow helped to confirm the identity. Turns out the woman had been in a relationship with one of the drivers, Mm -hmm. and so they suspected they knew who it was, Mm -hmm. but they had to confirm it. Mm -hmm. And it was looking at her teeth and her fillings and comparing those to dental x-rays that actually gave them that confirmation. Well, this fascinated Bill to to see this firsthand, the way that they were able to to use this forensic knowledge, these techniques to help solve this case. He just loved it. So he switched his focus to anthropology. And in 1956, he decided to do his PhD studies at the University of Pennsylvania because he wanted to study under Dr. Wilton Krogman, who was the most famous, quote, bone detective of the 1940s and 1950s. And he's one of the three men credited with helping to start the field of forensic anthropology. That's amazing to I me, know. to start a field. Right? And also to think it only goes back to the 1940s and 1950s. Yeah. Like, that's interesting, too. We say, I said just a second ago, that was a long time ago. But then in the scope of human history, that's not that long ago. It's not. Yeah. Well, Dr. Krogman gave Bill a lot of individual attention. In fact, Bill looked at him sort of as a mentor. Mm-hmm. And they remained close even after Bill left in 1960 to begin teaching at the University of Nebraska. And then a year or two later, then when he moved to the University of Kansas, they, they kept in touch all this time. Mm-hmm. And so while working on his PhD in 1957, another experience Bill had that kind of led to his knowledge and some of the experiences that he had behind him was that he had the opportunity to start spending one of many summers to follow working for the Smithsonian Institution, helping to excavate Ankara grave sites in South Dakota. Now, what was going to happen was they were going to flood those areas due to this dam that was being constructed and they were yeah. going to lose everything. Do you remember that part? I do remember that, yes. And they used ants, correct? They found where they were buried because of where the ants were making the anthills. That was one of the strategies. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fascinating. So here's another quote from the book. Over the course of 14 summers, I excavated somewhere between four and 5,000 Indian burials on the Great Plains. As far as I know, that's more than anyone else in the world. Mm. Now, because this went on for 14 summers, his wife at the time was Anne and his sons had to be there too. I mean, mm-hmm. this was his, their entire mm-hmm. Summers. Anne was a nutrition scientist. She was also a researcher and a scientist. So she spent a lot of her time working to improve nutrition for the Sioux Indians who were living on a nearby reservation. But something that came up in Bill's discussion of, of this time of his life was there was a lot of controversy about about his the excavation. Actions. Yeah. Do yeah. you do you remember anything about oh. that? 
I don't think so. Other than I think people were wondering, why do you have to do this? Why are you doing this? It's disturbing them. But I think his point was they're going to be lost. Mm -hmm. So where do we land with this? Yes. Yes. It. I think it was an opportunity for him to bring out in the book that he recognizes there is controversy yeah. around what he does. What he does. Because on the one hand, we want to show respect mm -hmm. to the those that have gone before us. And we understand there's a lot of spiritual things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. beliefs mm -hmm. and, and values, all of these feelings that are attached to the people who have passed. But part of his science is also honoring and learning from them and being able to use that knowledge to preserve cultures right. Right. or to help people down the road. So he literally said it was around the 1990s when he felt like people started to speak up and see things a little differently. Some, some people literally considered this to be grave robbing mm -hmm. and they were very upset about what was happening. But he, again, said scientifically losing all of that information would have been devastating. Here's a small quote. He said that excavations and collections such as the Smithsonian's have played a crucial role in illuminating the history, culture, and evolution of humans in general and Native Americans in particular. Mm. So just kind of touching on that part of his life just to bring out that perspective that he shared in the book. Now, moving on, he started getting involved Involved in some crimes. In 1962, when he was a fairly new professor, it was actually very rare for a forensic anthropologist to be invited to a crime scene. But what would occasionally happen was that law enforcers would come to him asking for help to identify a body, that type of thing. Right. And he said this could actually be a big problem because if the people handling the bodies and searching for body parts at the scene didn't handle those body parts well correctly, or if they didn't search in the way they should have. Yeah. Like there were so many possibilities of either missing things yeah. or actually damaging the evidence, mm -hmm. just all kinds of things that went wrong with it. So as Bill formed relationships with the law enforcement, he started to get invited to the scenes and he talked about how helpful that was. Yeah. So instead of them bringing it to him, he's able to go and extract it. Yes. Gotcha. And, and find things that they would have missed mm -hmm. or preserve those pieces in ways that might not have happened otherwise. Mm -hmm. Either way, whether they brought it to him or whether he went to the scene, Bill was always using the situations to teach his students. He was always trying to involve some of them and, and really mentoring, I felt. Is that kind of a theme that you picked up when you I, were reading yes, the book? Yes, I did. I did. I think that he was trying to do what everyone who is an expert in their field should do, which is train someone to take their place so mm -hmm. that it can continue. Yeah. Well, some of the techniques, obviously this, this book was so detailed. It was fascinating. This is very surface level, but just to give you an idea... He said that he taught his students when you examine a body in a forensic case, obviously your ultimate goal is to make a positive identification. And he said one of the first things he would always do when presented with bones was to lay them out in anatomical order. Mm -hmm. And then he would go straight towards trying to identify what they kept referring to as the big four. You've already named them. Sex, ancestry, age, and like the stature or the height. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then he went through this in the book. He would talk about all the different clues that you could use to help you figure out each one of those if you had enough of the body to work with right. because that could definitely hold you back if you didn't have mm -hmm. the right body parts. But he gave that example. If you were trying to determine sex in the skull, you could look for a large brow ridge and a bony bump at the base. That would indicate it was a man. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it were a narrower pelvis and less angled, that would also mean a man. A man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's just an example. And as Ashley alluded before, they even had a formula that they could use to help determine height based on the measurement of certain long bones. The femur was the one that tended to give the best results. And so what, what he would teach his students was that once you knew the big four, then you would also then go on to try to find those things like, were there clues about how they died? Right. Were there clues about how long since death? And obviously trying to identify the person through whatever means you could. Maybe you could match their teeth to dental right. records. I thought it was interesting that it wasn't time of death, but time since mm -hmm. death, yeah. which was a different way to phrase it. Usually we've heard, well, the time of death was set between 2 and 4 a.m. This is time since, since death. death. So that you could kind of take it backwards to get to yeah. time, time of, of death. death. Mm -hmm. Yes. So one of the parts that I thought was most fascinating and was also, I think, most 
instrumental into affecting the course of his career Mm -hmm. happened back in 1977. Somewhere along the line, he had moved to the University of Tennessee. And by 1977, he was both the Tennessee State Forensic Anthropologist and also a consultant to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And that's the year when this particular case happened. All right, here's the situation. Which case? Oh, you're going to remember. As soon as I start talking, it's going to come right back to you. So a wealthy couple had bought property that held an Mm, antebellum estate. Yes. You remember this? I do. And they were working to update it. So one day the wife was in the graveyard that was on their land, and she noticed there had been some disturbances around the grave of this gentleman named Colonel William Shy, who had died back in 1864 at the Battle of Nashville. Mm -hmm. Well, she immediately thought grave robbers robbers, because yeah yeah, they're gonna they're trying to get into this grave they're trying to find civil war artifacts so she calls the police but it was christmas eve it didn't sound like anything urgent so they waited a few days before they came out and when the sheriff finally did get there and start poking around the dirt he came across a headless body wearing this tuxedo Mm -hmm. so they immediately made this inference maybe this was a waiter yep yep you remember that part the corpse appeared to be badly decomposed, but they guesstimated that it was only a few months dead because most of the body was intact and Mm -hmm. the flesh still looked pink. That's crazy. I know. So the sheriff and the coroner decided right there while they were still at the site, they might need some help because basically they figured we are going to have to excavate this site Mm -hmm. because we have a new murder victim that has somehow been dumped into this old grave site of Colonel William Shy. It's been, they, they used an old gravesite to cover up the new murder. Mm, exactly. So they called Bill. And this chapter in the book is fascinating. I'm not doing it justice. So read it if you have a chance. Definitely read but, it. yes, here's the summary. After excavating the body from Colonel Shai's gravesite. He hung Shai's upside gravesite. down. Do you remember that? They held him by his feet and he hung upside down. <laughs> I know. This the man. The dedication. The dedication Ooh. to the job. Yes. Yeah. It was cold and he's like, here, hang on to my ankles. That's crazy. It is crazy. Well, after excavating it and completing all the normal procedures to determine the big four, they still could not identify the man. So the newspapers got in on it. They started running stories that, you know, do we know who might be missing? You know, here's the situation. Mm -hmm. And they even quoted Bill as saying, quote, it appears the man has been dead two months to a year and a year may be a little too much. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, a sheriff's deputy later went poking around a little bit more and found the skull and the mandible. And this allowed them to determine cause of death as well, because it was really clear when you looked at the skull that the man had died due to a gunshot to the head. Correct. Well, the mystery continued. Yes. Until one day, Bill got a call from a technician from the state crime lab in Nashville. And this technician obviously had been doing some work on the same case. Mm -hmm. And he explained that the clothing looked really odd. Mm -hmm. It looked very old. Couldn't find any labels. There was nothing synthetic, which was very strange. Yes. And it looked outdated. For example, there was lacing on the trouser legs. And Bill explains how he had started (laughs) getting this feeling yes oh (laughs) like oh yep And finally, this technician says, do you think this could actually be the body of it Colonel is Shy? Colonel Shy. <laughs> and Bill knew it. He knew it. He'd already, like, all these pieces had been falling into place. Because of the extensive damage to the skull, correct? Because the way that it wasn't just a gunshot wound, it was an explosion. It, yes. There, yes. It, well, there were a lot of things that finally Clicked. brought this to light. Yes, exactly. That's a good word. So instead of a murder victim being added to the grave, Again, I'm just kind of summarizing, but basically the grave robber had pulled Colonel Shy partway out of yes. the grave, yes, causing the skull and some of the body parts to kind of fall off and yes. get lost in the process. The clothing and the cause of death made sense now because as you said, there was that huge gunshot wound, that explosion. Well, he had been shot in the forehead during battle at in the point, Civil War. Yes. At point blank range during hand-to-hand combat. So that made perfect sense. He was in that clothing, not because he was a waiter, because at that time... That was his if, best suit. Yep. If you were a man of standing, and he was, those were his best clothes. They right. even found, once they knew the truth, they even recognized his 
outfit from the last known photograph that had ever been taken mm-hmm. of him. And he was wearing it. Yeah. So it was horrifying for Bill to realize how that he, wrong he how had, wrong mm-hmm. he this man had died 113 years ago. He had said within the last year. Yeah. He was 112 years off. Right. Now they explain in the book how did Bill get misled so badly? Two key factors. One was the body had been embalmed, something that was not super common back in the 1860s. But once you knew that Colonel Shy was an officer and a man of social standing, not as surprising. Okay. But that was a great embalmer. His skin was still pink. Yeah. Well, the second part of it that speaks to that as well was that the coffin was made of cast iron and had been hermetically sealed. Ah. Because that coffin had been sealed so well, it had protected the body from water. It had kept coffin flies and other insects away, which is a huge deal because because that's something that the book goes into is how much insects and maggots and coffin flies play a role in the decomposition of bodies. It had also kept oxygen out, which thereby prevented Mm -hmm. some of the bacteria. Mm -hmm. All of these things taken together had really kept this body from decomposing in the way you would normally see a body decompose if it had been dead for that long. So again, once he knew the truth, Mm -hmm. then all of this made sense. Mm -hmm. But Bill talks about it was his biggest and most embarrassing mistake being off 112 years in his estimated time since death. He received phone calls, communications, teasing him about it. The papers got hold of it. I mean, it was awful. And he said that it followed him forever because any time the rest of his career that he would be put on the stand as an expert witness in a case. They would bring this up to discredit him. And here we are talking about it too, but we're talking about it more like this is what led to the creation. Yeah. Not a mocking kind of thing. Absolutely not. In fact, to me, it's one of the best lessons because I wrote down this quote from the book. Humbling experiences can open the door to life's greatest insights though, if we're willing to learn from them. And that that is is 100% the point of this experience. Yep. His, what he thought was his most embarrassing moment, his biggest failure was a turning point for him. He learned from it. It led to his legacy. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So to me, I actually got, I know I'm a nerd. I kind of got chills when I read that because I was like, that's the attitude. We learn from our failures and we turn them into something really good. So this is what ultimately led to the body farm because it says he kept questioning that. How could he have been so far off with his estimate about time since death? Death. And here's another quote from the book. The more comprehensive answer was also more unsettling. I just didn't know enough, not nearly enough about the post-mortem processes that begin when human life ends. And it wasn't just me. None of us knew enough. Mm-hmm. Anthropologists, pathologists, coroners, police, we were all woefully ignorant about what happens to bodies after death and how and when. And that's when he actually brought up the book that I had referenced yeah. that came out in 1247. He pointed out really it's not been a lot of advancement since then no he said this book in 1247 is basically one Still of the last the time yes <laughs> like one of the last times that people have studied this researched this tried mm-hmm. to put out some kind of information about it mm-hmm. nobody's been been studying this since so he basically saw a need and he said i'm gonna fill this need absolutely now one cool thing was he said a spark had come years before that hadn't gone anywhere but it was kind of this seed that had been planted that mm-hmm. also kind of germinated at this time. Harold Nye was a really good friend of Bill's and he was one of the KBI agents who helped to catch the killers Dick Hickok and Perry Smith who were the killers in that incident Truman Capote wrote about in his book In Cold Cold Blood. Blood. Mm -hmm. Yes, which fascinated me by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I read that book, super disturbing. But Bill referred to Harold Nye as a living legend at the KBI which is the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. In fact, he shared that he learned one of his most most important lessons about crime scene investigation from Harold. And that lesson was to, uh, quote, shoot your way in and shoot your way out. Talking about photography. Uh, photography, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind, actually, I'll have you read this short quote sure. from page 74. When you arrive at the scene and get out of your car, take a picture of the house or the car or whatever the scene is, he said. As you walk 
closer. Take some more. Take pictures of the ground before you walk on it. Take pictures of who's there. Pictures of what kind of shoes officers at the scene are wearing. Take pictures of the body before you move it or even touch it. And Bill explained that because Harold had done that, that's how he was, one of the ways that he was able to solve that case, again, covered in the book In Cold Blood, because they used those photographs later to kind of track down those uh, killers. I like where he said, take pictures of the shoes that the policemen are wearing so you can eliminate those mm-hmm. from the footprints that you see. Yeah, very mm-hmm. smart. Mm-hmm. Well, Harold was the one, again, who had planted this seed because a long time ago, Harold, of course, was in Kansas and he dealt with a lot of cases that involved cattle wrestling. So back in 1964, Harold had contacted Bill to ask if there was a way to tell how long a cow had been dead by examining the skeleton. Bill had thought about it. He had double-checked with the university's paleontologist and then he had sent Harold a letter back that said basically, sorry, no. But in that letter, he had included a suggestion. He had said, you know, if there were some interested farmer who would be willing to... (laughs) I don't get behind this, Bill, but I I, I understand where you're coming from, but I do not get behind this. (laughs) As somebody who owns cattle, you're like... As somebody who owns cattle and loves animals, I'm sorry. Not in the interest of science. If I had one that had already died, I would call you, but keep going. Well, apparently nobody else was interested either. So to to finish finish this, his idea was to find an interested farmer who'd be willing to kill a cow and Mm -hmm. let it lie Mm -hmm. so that they could run an experiment on how long it would take the flesh to decay and start, you know, they would start to collect Mm -hmm. some information Mm -hmm. about the process. His letter went on to say that since the rate of decomposition would be different in summer versus winter, they would probably need to sacrifice, you know, a few different cows to get all the data they needed. Yeah. Apparently no farmers were willing (laughs) or else else Harold was like, yeah, Yeah, no no. thanks, Bill. Appreciate the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But regardless... Yeah, I understand what... I understand his concept and he that he's correct. That is the only way, but I am not going to kill a perfectly happy live animal for that. Right. Well, now it's 1980. He's had the embarrassment with the Colonel Shy case mm-hmm. and this seed is back in his mind. He'd been... Bill had been teaching at UT for quite some time, serving as the Tennessee State Forensic Anthropologist. And over the years, there had been several instances when he needed a place to store a body temporarily until he could clean and study the bones. Do you remember the story about the poor janitor? <laughs> what, which, oh, he kept, he kept stuff in the room and the janitor was like, you clean your own place, right? I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. And his wife, his poor wife, oh, I he know. would take stuff home and he would do gross. I mean, it's not gross. I know it's scientific, but speaking from the wife, he would boil skin off of bones on her to stove yes. and then it would spill over. And she's like, you're getting me a new stove, man. He went through like three different stoves for her. This guy was... All about his yes, work. Yes, he was. Yeah. I admire it, but I'm. I gotta. I gotta sympathize with her. Like, Mm-mm, get your own place. Well, and the the janitor put his foot down, yeah. down as well because what ultimately happened was this one time Bill needed to store a bundled up dead body and tucked it in the mop closet near his <laughs> office no. and did not tell the janitor, no. who then at night while cleaning came across it yes. in the mop closet yes. and threw such a fit that they decided this was not going to work. Yeah. And Bill went to the college dean and that dean ended up finding a vacant farm that the College of Agriculture was not using. Mm-hmm. It had a vacant sow barn, which Bill described as a three-sided shed. So this worked great as a place to store bodies. And also, I think they would also use that as a place sometimes to do that cleaning process sure. or to you know mm-hmm. remove flesh from bodies. And that was a place that they used for several years until they started to notice footprints and other signs Mm -hmm. of people trespassing. Mm -hmm. Do you remember who it ended up being? Wasn't it like the football team? It was actually prisoners from the nearby correctional facility. (laughs) They were like, "Mm, no, I don't want to be here. (laughs) What is happening over here? These prisoners would sometimes work outside. They had noticed that bodies occasionally were housed in that Mm -hmm. sow barn. So they were just coming to peep. Yes, it was a curiosity. Mm -hmm. But this was a concern because if people were on that property, they could destroy evidence. They could... Do things that were not good. So Bill needed a different place, a more secure storage facility. And this was where he put it together. And he also thought about the mistake with Colonel Shy, that idea that Harold Nye had sparked. And he thought, you know what? If I had a new facility, instead of just a place to store bodies and, you know, do the cleaning process, we could set it up as an opportunity to actually study and observe the decomposition process. And a quote, 
from the book said the idea was simple, the implications and the possible complications were profound. By most cultural standards and values, such research could appear gruesome, disrespectful, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and even shocking. But the university's leaders recognized the potential and they found him a location because it was clear they would not only need a bigger place, but they also needed it to be closer to his offices at UT. And the spot they found was an acre of surplus land behind the UT Medical Center, where for years the hospital's trash had been burned. But it was only five minutes from Bill's office. That's perfect. So let's take a break and come back and talk about the birth of the body farm. Okay. All right, we are back. So Bill and his students were the ones who did most of the work. They cleared trees and brush. They laid a gravel driveway. They ran a water line and electricity from the hospital and even got a 16 by 16 foot square ready for concrete to be poured. Mm -hmm. And then on that little pad of concrete, they erected a small building, which was going to be used to store their equipment and supplies. But then because the building was small, it left kind of a, he almost called it a front porch area, this 10 by 16 square foot area of concrete pad that was left over. And that was a space they were going to use to lay bodies out to study their decomposition process. They also had a fence to try to keep out intruders since they had learned. They learned that lesson. Yeah, exactly. And then the next step was trying to get some research subjects. So Bill sent Research letters. subjects. I know, I know. Yeah. It sounds better than bodies. It does. Okay. All right. So Bill sent letters to the medical examiners and the funeral directors all across Tennessee, like all the different counties. And the very first donation came in May of 1981. It was a 73-year-old white male who had suffered from chronic alcoholism, emphysema, mm-hmm. and heart disease. And mm-hmm. he had been donated by his daughter. Bill himself mm-hmm. drove a pickup truck an hour to the funeral home mm-hmm. to pick up the body. And even though... Though they did know the man's identity, for confidentiality, they started their process with mm-hmm. this number system. Mm-hmm. They decided that they were going to use a system the of the year and the f- whatever number, of number the body. The body. Mm-hmm. Right. So this man was 181 because he was the first body donated in the year of 1981. Right. They laid the body on a concrete pad. They took pictures to capture the conditions. And then they covered the body with this wooden framework screened with wire mesh. Mm-hmm to protect it from rodents and other larger, predators larger that were predators. small enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was the official start of the anthropology research facility, which some people jokingly decided they were going to put the name Bass in front of it so that it was Bass Anthropology Research Facility, BARF, (laughs) B-A-R-F. Which is what I would do if I was there. (laughs) But basically everybody just started calling it the body farm. Yeah. Yeah. So over the next month or so, Bill and his students learned through observation primarily. He said in the book, quote, as far as I knew, no scientist had ever done this before, deliberately set out a human body to decompose, then simply sat back and watched, taking systematic note of what happened. That's a lot of time commitment. Yes. A lot. And as you said, there's a lot of gruesome detail in the book. I'm not going to go into much detail here, but just to give a general idea, Bill shares that there are four broad stages in a body's decomposition process. There's the fresh stage, Mm -hmm. the bloated stage, the decay stage, and the dry stage. And he, of course, shares what occurs during each of those stages, but we won't Mm -hmm. (laughs) go into that now. But something else that was happening with this first donated body, there was a graduate student named Bill Rodriguez. He was also studying insect activity in relation. I thought this was very interesting. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you you want to jump in here? I don't recall enough of it. I remember it being fascinating. Yes. And also reminded me of Gil Peterson in CSI. That's what he did too. He always used insects to see how long the body had been well apparently i mean i would have never expected this but apparently it's just unbelievable what you can learn from Mm -hmm. knowing how the insects act upon the body in this whole decay process Mm -hmm. because bill says in his book quote this insect study would help spur a revolution in forensic science becoming one of the most heavily cited anthropology papers of all time yeah so is do you remember the case with the little girl and he 
was trying to find this one, there's a one certain yes. stage of death where if, if he could find a photograph with this, but I don't remember what it was. I don't want to say bot fly, that's wrong, but it's some kind of fly and it's at this certain stage and he could prove the person that killed them, but he couldn't find a picture and they finally found mm-hmm. one. It was in her hair and he could, he, that's how they caught the guy yeah, or proved just, that the guy that they like, thought did it. was it. like a piece of larva or yes, something. Yes, in her hair. Yes. So it, it does go into a great, <laughs> a lot of detail oh, yeah. in the book about the role that flies, maggots, and others play. Well, in a month, body 181 had become basically just a little more than a skeleton. Mm-hmm. And so Bill left the bones to bleach for four or five more months. And then he brought them into the hospital morgue for processing, which is basically when you clean them off so that nothing's left but the bone. Now, the point of that was Bill had a second goal. He was going to collect data and also start building a collection of modern skeletons in order to help with forensics because mm-hmm. a lot of the collections that they had been using all these years were inaccurate because it was outdated info. Mm. So old skeletons, think about how we evolve and we change over time. So for example, our average height is a few inches taller than we were a hundred years ago. Gotcha. So if we were using old data, a lot of the estimates of the stature of a current person gotcha. could be off. Could be off. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they needed, that was something that he felt would really move science forward is if they could get modern skeletons. So to just summarize, a lot of this early research was basically just observing and recording, but then as the years passed, they started branching out with their studies and they began doing a lot of other, I guess, experiments or a lot of other pointed research Mm -hmm. in order to find out to answer specific questions. Right. So for example, in terms of decomposition, they wanted to know what difference between a body left in sunlight versus shade. Winter or summer. Yep. Mm -hmm. Winter or summer. Indoors versus outdoors. Being in the passenger side of the car versus in the trunk. Being in land Mm -hmm. versus on water. Example after example. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things in the book was they talk a lot about real cases that Bill was involved with. Worked on. But then they also talked about how those cases were either used to spark a new idea in their research or how their research played a role in helping to solve that case. Right. Either way. Right. So I'm going to give you an example. Here's one case in which Bill was called in to help. There was a vacant lot in a residential area that was very high traffic. It was a busy street. And the neighbor complained that this one lot had become an eyesore because of all the trash and debris. Mm -hmm. So the owner of that empty lot sent in a cleanup crew and they like I think with machinery and equipment not just like a few people with you know buckets and when they were cleaning it up they found a skull so they called Bill he and his team went in they you know did their research and they did their searching I should say and they found a few more bones I remember what the question was oh yes it was how could someone die and no one notice it especially the smell yes that's what this case that's his question absolutely How, how far away does it have to be before you begin to smell the decomposition of a body. Absolutely. Because in this case, the mystery was not who the man was. Mm -hmm. They knew that this fella was a gentleman named Orville King because his name was written on his dentures. Mm. And they knew his body had been on that lot for quite some time, possibly even two years, because he was a 70-year-old man, excuse me, 74-year-old man who had spent some time in a psychiatric hospital and they were able to kind of trace his movements a little bit. Mm -hmm. So they just suspected he'd fallen down or fallen asleep while he was on that empty lot and just simply passed away. But as you said, how could nobody have known about his death, especially in the first weeks after, because that's the time when When the smell smell should have been, yes, the most aromatic, I Mm -hmm. guess. So they decided, this prompted an investigation, they were going to do a study to determine at what distance could a human nose detect a decomposing body. And Bill said, it wasn't just curiosity, he felt this information could be very helpful to police, to firefighters, to search and rescue workers, like anywhere. Right. So do you remember how he set up the study? Didn't he, he told his students uh, for extra credit, they could come with him. He wasn't going to tell them anything. And basically he took them on a hike and he just said, tell me when you smell something. Yes. Basically you're exactly right. It was a Saturday. He offered extra credit. He put 
the, the students in this holding area, and mm-hmm. he had gone out in advance, taken a donated body that it was in a state of being bloated and therefore was very smelly, mm-hmm. and he positioned it on a gravel road leading into the body farm, and he made sure that the body was hidden by trees and bushes. Yes. And he set up markers every 10 yards oh, as a way markers. to measure yeah. the distance, and then he would take those students one by one down that path, and he would say, tell me when you smell something, and he found out that most did not detect the odor until they were 20 or in some cases even 10 yards away. Yes. So he made a point of saying this was not a study that he could ever put into a professional journal, but it provided helpful information. And it did explain why the people who had been walking along that sidewalk or living next door to that poor man had no idea that he'd been laying there all that time. Right. I was outside a couple days ago and I was getting ready to water my flowers. And for some reason, I was checking the hose thing and I lift, it's right by our front Mm -hmm. door. You pass it. Hmm. I lifted up the hose thing and I was like, oh something's dead in here like oh, a little mouse or yeah. something i smelled that smell of death yeah but i never could find it so i was looking in there shined a light in there but i know something and that's right by the front door and i did not smell it until i lifted until that Until you moved it mm-hmm. and i again what do we know but right. i'm assuming when you think though about the size of a of mouse, a mouse. Versus, sure yeah but but no it's it was fascinating to think yes. about how far it could travel so a couple of interesting notes that occurred related to the body farm over the years one issue they had it was protesters. Oh, yes. You remember that part? Yes. So what had happened was this fella who was doing some survey work accidentally stumbled upon the body farm one day and he could see... He was mortified. Yes, he could see these bodies and he had obviously gone home and told his mom, you know, what he saw. Yeah. And as, you know, this concerned mother, even though her son is a grown man, she gathered some other people and they formed this group called Solutions to Issues of Concern to Knoxvillians or SICK. Sick. (laughs) Yes. So... um, We got barf and sick. They decided they needed a better fence around the perimeter of their property. Which is a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one advancement that was very nice. And then I'll have you read another excerpt from the book, if you don't mind, Ashley. During the decades since we'd begun studying human decomposition at our research facility, we'd done dozens of studies and experiments, most of them involving the many variables that affect the rate of decomposition. We'd seen bodies hold together throughout winter and much of spring, and we'd watched them skeletonize in as little as two weeks during the muggy heat of summer. We'd compared bodies tucked in the shade with bodies baked in the sun and found that the bodies in the sun tended to mummify, their skin becoming tough as leather, impervious to maggots. We'd compared bodies on land to bodies submerged in water. The floaters lasted twice as long. We'd compared bodies on the surface to bodies buried in graves, ranging from shallow to deep. The deeply buried bodies took eight times as long to decompose as the exposed bodies. So that gave a little bit of an overview of some of the information, some of the learning that had occurred in the 10 years that they had been running the body farm. Mm -hmm. Another notable advancement was when Bill's former student, Arpad Voss, was able to come up with a strategy of almost working backwards. I'm, again, simplifying this. But after doing a lot of deep research, what he figured out was that he could analyze the concentrations of the decay material, factor in temperature patterns, and then calculate using some kind of formula that he created basically a way to really pinpoint this narrow window of the estimated time since death. Mm -hmm. So this was something that really moved them forward. I'm going to use this opportunity just to kind of make a point that I don't think I've said yet. This was a huge thing. We we referenced how he was always teaching. Right. But Bill was super proud of how his yes, how his students took what they had learned and then how they then advanced the field. Yes. I really liked how he was so he wasn't someone that said I need to be the best. Like I said, he wanted to be someone that advanced his field. And he said, let's all work together and let's do this. Mm-hmm. So I love that you said that. Let's work together because that was a theme. A lot of, lots of collaboration, mm-hmm. lots of collaboration. And since we used the word collaboration, here's another interesting one. Yeah. The one we referenced earlier with Patricia Cornwell, right. the author. So this was fascinating to me since I knew her only as an author, but I looked on Patricia Cornwell's website and it shares 
that after earning her degree in English from Davidson College in 1979, she began working at the Charlotte Observer. So she was a newspaper reporter and she said she would take whatever stories came her way. Then she, you know, advanced and went into covering the police beat. It said she actually received widespread attention and praise for a series of articles on sex work and crime in downtown Charlotte. She's like our girl Maureen. I, I thought of that actually. Mm -hmm. So from the Charlotte Observer, she moved to a job with the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner of Virginia. And this obviously was, I think, instrumental in creating that fictional character, Case Scarpetta, that uh -huh. was the heroine of her series. And it was during these years when she was working there that Patricia Cornwell created her book Postmortem, began submitting, you know, her books to different publishing houses. And of course, we know she's incredibly successful now. In fact, it said on her website, she sold something like 100 million copies in 36 languages over 120 countries. Whoa. But Bill's encounter with her was back in 1993. And what happened was... That's the best year. <laughs> That's so funny how often that year comes up. <laughs> 1895 and 1993 comes up in a whole lot. Wow. Well, back... you know what happened that year, right, Candy? <laughs> 1993? Jurassic Park? That's right. Of course I know. <laughs> I've is, taught you well. This is probably about the fifth time, I, I think, that we have... <laughs> so it was back in 1993 that Patricia Cornwell called Bill to ask if he would be willing to run an experiment to help her with her new novel. Now, they knew each other because they had met while she was working at that yeah. medical examiner's office and she'd attended some kind of call. training seminar yeah. that he presented at. So, yeah, they knew each other. Well, she was planning a novel in which the killer was going to return to the basement where the death had occurred. And it was supposed to be several days after the murder. Mm -hmm. This killer was going to come back to move the body to another location. And in researching for her book, what Patricia wanted to know was, could Bill find out for her the signs or marks that a body could pick up as it began to decay? Right. Yeah, like and the then, penny and... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Part and of then, me was like, can't you just make that up? Nobody's going to check you on it. <laughs> I thought it was kind of cool that it was she wanted cool. to really know. I did too, but I thought... Okay. <laughs> if it was me writing it, and I don't know Bill, I'd be like, uh, yeah, here's what happened. <laughs> but I'm not a best-selling author. Well, you know, she made a lot of money off That's that it. book. But she not only wanted to know what marks the body could pick up, she also wanted to know how much of that detail would still be evident on the body mm -hmm. after it was moved to the new location. So Bill said that he started to say no, because he wasn't going to do something just for a novel. Just for fun. Right. He was going to do something for fun. But he actually thought about it and realized this was a question that could be helpful to law enforcement. And he even called his detective friend, Art Bohannon, to say, do you think this would be valuable information? Mm -hmm. And I admire that he did that. He didn't mm -hmm. just do it for entertainment. He stuck true to his, I don't want to say morals, but his code, his code of ethics mm -hmm. and said, I'm only doing this to advance science. Right. Yeah. Well, Art Bohannon 100% supported this because he pointed out that if you can use fingerprints to solve crimes, this idea of distinctive marks on the body during the decaying process, well, that could potentially be another way to get information that could help to identify a body or to solve a crime. Mm -hmm. So his friend 100% supported this. So here was the experiment. To simulate a basement, they used a concrete slab they had already actually kind poured. of yeah, poured and had ready in their storage shed. So it was already there, didn't have to do anything for that. Then they built fake walls around it to simulate this enclosed basement. Sure. So basically it was a plywood box that was eight feet long, four feet wide and four feet high with the concrete slab as the floor of it. Mm -hmm. So it was almost summer in real life, but they needed it to meet the requirements of Patricia's book, which kind of takes place in the mountains. So Patricia actually paid for them to get an air conditioner that they could put in the area mm -hmm. to, to control the temperature. Mm -hmm. And and she even came out during the experiment to visit the body farm in general, you know, but also the specific experiment site that she had requested and they said she took a ton of notes. I right? bet. Well, they took the fingerprints of the donated body. They placed that body on, it was a male, so they placed him on his back in the plywood box with a penny, head side up, a key, a brass strike from a door frame. Which is what was in her book, right? That's what she was going to have under the body in the book. I'm I feel not, like I don't not. recall that, but that's a, that's a really good question. They put a pair of scissors and they also had a chain from a chainsaw. All of those things were under 
under the body. Mm-hmm. Okay. They returned six days later. They took the body to the morgue to examine it. And they found very distinctive marks left by the objects in that body's skin. For example, on the body's lower back, there was a perfect circle in which you could see the faint imprint of Abraham Lincoln's head. Oh. All of the items had left an imprint. Mm-hmm. The chainsaw's chain had left a coiled imprint. Mm-hmm. Everything was sharply outlined on, on the, the body. body. Now, there was also a mysterious raised line of flesh that was zigzagging across the back and shoulder of the body. And they realized that had been caused by a crack in the concrete. Oh, interesting. So they shared their findings with Patricia Cornwell. The book came out about a year later. And Bill said how pleased he was to learn that she actually called it the body farm. Mm -hmm. Which really gave them a huge leap in publicity. Yes, massive publicity. By 1996, by the way, that book was one of the best-selling mysteries ever published at that time. Wow. Not just in the U.S., but internationally. And then, as you said, it brought so much attention to them that there were a lot of positives, but also some drawbacks, like distractions, that type of thing. Yeah. But a big positive was a huge increase in body donations. Mm. All right. Moving forward. By 1999, the body farm had been operating for about 18 years, and Bill had had his graduate students track the decomposition of more than 300 corpses. We're going to read one more excerpt from the book. Since the body farm's first research back in 1981, Bill Rodriguez's pioneering entomological study, we'd done dozens of decomp studies under a wide range of conditions. We'd hid corpses in the woods. We'd locked them in the trunks and back seats of cars. We'd buried them in shallow graves. We'd submerged them on water. Then we studied and documented everything that happened to them, from the moment of death right up until the time, weeks or months later, when nothing remained but bone. We were building a time-since-death database, the first and only one of its kind in the world, by charting the processes and timetable of human decomposition. My goal for the data was simple. Anytime a real-life murder victim was found, under virtually any circumstances, or at any stage of decomposition, I wanted to be able to tell police with scientific certainty when that person was killed. So... So many advancements that they were able to make through the body farm. This book, again, ends in 2002. There were so many, excuse me, 2003. There were so many cases that we got to hear about that Mm -hmm. we don't have time to mention Mm -hmm. right now. Just in passing, one story that I thought was fascinating was Bill's involvement with that case of the tri-state crematory where the funeral home, it was a crematorium actually, instead of actually taking care of the bodies and cremating them, they found all everywhere bodies left all Mm. around the site and so i thought that was fascinating and how he helped put one family's loved one loved one and he found them yes yes and he helped to confirm that was actually that gentleman so there were just so many fascinating cases but to bring this to a close at the end of the book bill bass refers to the body farm as his proudest scientific creation Mm -hmm. and so what has happened since then here's just a quick little rundown of, of a few things so we should mention again dr bass highly acclaimed. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. He was honored as the 1985 to 86 National Professor of the Year. So many different awards or ways that he's been honored. He retired as a professor in 1997 after heading UT's anthropology department for 29 years, Mm. but continued working part-time for another four years. Mm. And I saw in a blog that was two years old that it says he's still involved with them Mm. doing research. Mm -hmm. So I believe he still probably consults with them. His work not only revolutionized forensic science, but since we're talking entertainment, it has also inspired several television television dramas. And you started, I think, the episode talking about some of the books that he has written in addition to this one. Yes. The co-author of the book that we've been, again, uh, that we've been pulling from, Death's Acre, was John Jefferson. And so in 2006, the two gentlemen, John Jefferson and Bill Bass, started collaborating. They put out different books. They started in 2006 with their first and the most recent I could find was 2016. So for at least 10 10 years, years. they were putting out books, the Body Farm series under the name Jefferson Bass. Oh, cute. I like that. There was a famous case in 2007. Dr. Bass was called in to deal with the exhumed body of J.P. 
P. Richardson, known as the Big Bopper, who was on the mm-hmm. airplane with mm-hmm. Richie Valens and Buddy Holly that crashed. Mm-hmm. So he helped put to rest a lot of rumors that, that had been going around about the Big Bopper's death. So that was another famous case that he was involved in. The Lindbergh baby, too. Yes. Correct? Yes. That was one of the first ones they that talked about. That was a long time ago. Yes. In 2011, they dedicated a new facility called the William M. Bass Forensic Anthropology Building. Aww. And then the Body Farm success actually led to the creation of a new site in the Cumberland Forest dedicated to training law enforcement to find hidden graves. Mm-hmm. It is run by the Law Enforcement Innovation Center, which is a part of the UT Institute for Public Service. It mentioned on Bill Bass's website, bonezones.com. In fact, several of these facts are from that source, by the way. But five other universities in the U.S. now have body farms, but it points out that UTs will always be the first. Yes, it will. (laughs) And today, the body farm trains scholars and law enforcement professionals from around the world about human decomposition and investigative techniques. The center also curates the country's largest collection of contemporary human skeletons. And I went in onto uh, UT's Forensic Anthropology website and the very first thing you see at the top is click here if you want information about body donation (laughs) it highlights the five women who are now leading the uh, forensic anthropology Mm. center but it talks about the fact that they not only do research and training which i think we've we've hit on quite a bit Mm -hmm. but they talk about the service aspect Mm -hmm. that this continues to be a place where the people who the teachers or the students they're helping with forensic cases Mm -hmm. and they're also providing lectures and and giving information to civic groups and students and the general public. So they're continuing Mm -hmm. that service as well. And one last comment, I was just so impressed. Dr. Bill Bass's website shows that this man at 94 years old is going strong. You can hire him for speaking engagements. There were three events that are listed on that website right now that he's leading. He gives lectures. This man, they have merchandise. You can buy merchandise and t-shirts that he autographs things oh so he is going strong armchair psychologist that was a lot that was a lot for our armchair ashley yes goodness well obviously we've talked quite a bit about the importance of this work that they're doing yes but we also referenced that there's a little bit of controversy right you know some people do find this disrespectful Mm -hmm. or gruesome Mm -hmm. where do you land on that Mm. I land on the side of science. I think it's important. I I do find it gruesome. I do find it... I don't feel it's disrespectful because either the person has chosen to or the family members have chosen for the person, in the, like in the case of that very first donated body. And it's essential to solving other crimes. Mm-hmm. If he was doing this just for entertainment value, like the author, Patricia Cornwell, if she'd come to him and said, I just want to know this for kicks. And he had said, sure, let's do it. But because he has a code of ethics. He's only doing it to advance the science and learning and there has to be a reason for it. I can get behind it. And I think it's necessary Mm -hmm. to help us solve crimes and to help other people have some peace from the murder victims. You know, people who are, are, who have been killed and their families want to know what happened to them. This is how we find out. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. I think the first point you made is critical. The fact that it's a choice on the part of I think in most cases, it's the person themselves. I think they choose well in advance of passing away that they're going to, this is what I want. I'm going to donate my body because I want something positive to come from Mm -hmm. this. So I think it's critical that it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And I I agree with your second point as well. We've focused so much on the logistics of the body farm and the process and the decomposition and all that. But ultimately, this information is helping people who are struggling with the most horrible thing that's ever happened in their life. Life, mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. Um, the loss of someone they or love the, yes or the murder whatever the case may be and so it is I guess it's a sacrifice in a way you know a, instead of going a traditional route mm-hmm. you know you're you're saying I'm gonna allow my body to be used in a different way but and I did not hear any evidence of them being disrespectful they seem no. to treat the bodies mm-hmm. and the people and the humans behind them with the utmost respect they they just did their scientific process and they didn't once it was done they didn't 
throw away the bodies. They didn't disrespect them. They clean them. I don't know what they do with the remains, but I assume they will dispose of them in a respectful manner. And in, in I don't know what else we can ask for. One other thing, I, I wrote down this quote because I really liked what he said. Talking about the importance of this work mm-hmm. that forensic anthropologists do, he said, I can't give people back their loved ones. I can't restore their happiness or innocence. Can't give back their lives the way they were. But I can give them the truth. Mm-hmm. Then they will be free to grieve for the dead and then free to start living again. Truth like that can be a humbling and sacred gift for a scientist to give. So that reminded me, I think, that this is the logistics and the in the trenches work for them. But mm-hmm. ultimately, their goal is to provide answers mm-hmm. and to make the quality of life better for people mm-hmm. at the end of this. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I land that it's a good thing to do. Would I want to donate my body? Right. I don't think I would. I don't think I would. But I respect those who do. Yes. I thank those who do. And I, mm, what a choice. Yeah. It's interesting. Should I end with this? Sure. Dr. Bass ended the book with that question of would he donate his body? Uh Uh-huh. And he said he's gone through a change in mindset through the years. He said when he was married to his first wife, by the way, he's been married three times, but his first two wives passed away. Correct. When he was married to his first wife, Anne, who was also a scientist, she wholeheartedly approved and said, yes, you should do this. And that Mm -hmm. was his mindset. Mm -hmm. He said his second wife, Annette, who was his assistant for a long time and knew the facility really well, said absolutely not. (laughs) And he said his last wife, Carol, was leaning toward a more traditional burial. Mm -hmm. And what Bill said was he has decided he'll leave it to Carol and the boys because the scientist in him wants to sign the donation papers, mm-hmm. but the rest of him really hates flies. <laughs> <laughs> now that was 2003. Honestly, yes. I wasn't able to see where he if, stands if now. Well, well, no, I was going to say, I, I believe Carol is all, is still with him, but oh. I'm not 100% positive, okay. but that's where he landed at the end of the book. I, I thought really that was, hate flies. <laughs> he really hated those flies. All right, Ashley. So to end, what do you think? Should we do a big cheers to Dr. Bill Bass and John Jefferson? I think we should. With a little with a little additional cheers to all those who've gone before that donated to this worthy cause. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the hosts during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.